In business and life, relationships are everything. Welcome to the People Catalyst Podcast, where we interview top business leaders and learn how they build relationships with their teams, clients, and those that promote and refer them. Here's your host, business trainer and leader of the People Catalyst team, Carla Nelson. And welcome to the People Catalyst Podcast, Alan Fadden. Hello, Carla. Hello, how are you today, sir? Oh, I'm just having a great time because I'm thinking, and uh, I'm pretty sure that I'm going to grow rich. As just by thinking, huh? Just by thinking. So No, no uh, doing necessary. No, not a, not a bit of that. No, I'm just <laughs> thinking, and I think I'm going to grow rich. That's fantastic. Well, Napoleon Hill would be very proud. So. Yes, he would. For today's podcast, we're going to be discussing the world-famous book, Think and Grow Rich. It's actually one of the first business books, or it's actually personal growth meets business books I've ever read. And it's by Napoleon Hill. It was published in 1937 during the Great Depression. There's been over 100 million copies sold, and it was inspired by the great Andrew Carnegie, who challenged Napoleon Hill to meet several successful individuals. There was actually quite a few, I'm not even 100% sure how many, and find a common recipe for success. However, for today, the title of our podcast is going to be Drink and Grow Rich. Yes, Drink and Grow Rich. And there's, uh, there's a, a purpose for that. And I think it's best explained by uh, a meeting I was lucky enough to have with Larry Wilson, the founder of Wilson Learning. And he looked at me and silver lunch and he said, Fadden, you know what the, uh, you know what the definition of pain is? And I said, no, not really. And he said, it's the difference between what we expect and what we get. Yeah. <laughs> Isn't that so true? Because if you had no expectations, then why would you ever experience the pain, right? Oh, yeah. And so, I mean, there are a lot of, a lot of books like this that said, basically, you don't have to do anything to get rich. And, um, and I think what happens, why, why would you drink? Well, you drink because you, you want to soothe that pain. And uh, I remember we were... Uh, uh, speaking for a group called uh, Disrupt HR, and it showed a sign that said, "There's a there's a place for all you disengaged employees, and it's called the bar, and that's where we meet every night." So, <laughs> I love that one. That was a good. That was a good. That was a good find for sure. And in Thinking for Rich, it talks about thirteen principles. Now, of course, all of these principles, and and Alan, you actually hit the nail on the head as far as there's so many business and self uh, improvement books that they tell you the problem over and over again, and you agree with the principles. And on this podcast, we talk about well, then how do you take that and get to implementation? And so within Think and Grow Rich, there's 13 principles, which are desire, faith, auto-suggestion, specialized knowledge, and it's actually general knowledge as well. Um, they juxtapose those. Imagination, organized planning, decision, persistence, power of the mastermind, sex transmutation, and you can look that one up on Google, mm -hmm. uh, subconscious mind the brain and the sixth sense. And so we're not going to talk about all those today, but we'll pull out a couple here in just a moment. I also wanted to highlight two quotes that have really become world famous quotes uh, that Napoleon Hill had in his book, which is a goal is a dream with a deadline. And one of the other quotes is whatever the mind of man can conceive and believe it can achieve. 
I actually forgot about that one. I remember reading the book long ago. Gosh, yes. maybe 20 years ago. I can't believe it's been that long. It doesn't seem like that long. But rereading and going through it, uh, just all of these principles we're going to say yes to. Um, like many other business and self-improvement books, it's not that you're, it's not that what they're stating is not accurate. It's just that where's that dissonance between saying, yes, that's the way and two, doing it, right? So what's the idea as we call ideation implementation? But the book was extremely successful. Uh, one of the things I think is interesting, Alan, is, you know, who writes a book called Think and Grow Rich During the Great Depression? I mean, it's just so, you know, Really? <laughs> but, yeah, exactly. It's like what? <laughs> but if you want to be successful, you know, there's a lot of evidence that says, uh, "Hey, look at what everybody else is doing, and do the opposite." Mm -hmm. And uh, there's a. Uh, we actually have a word for that with uh, the People Catalyst. It's called opportunity. <laughs> opportunity, an opportunity that is caused by a unity of opposites. So opportunity, and how do you uh, how do you find that? Well, let's uh, let's talk about some uh, some p possibilities as far as uh, the stories, and uh, uh, it, when it actually happened. And I think one of the great conclusions about that is uh, one of, one of the things that Niels Bohr, who is the Danish physicist who won uh, the Nobel Prize in 1923 for physics, and he said that the opposite of any truth is not necessarily a falsehood. It's an off, often an even greater truth. So mm -hmm. don't be afraid to look at the opposite of what is true today because so much change is cyclical. And that means it's gonna to change to the opposite. Hairstyles get longer, they get shorter, they get longer. Uh, ties get longer, they get shorter, they get longer. Uh, it, it, you know, everything. You Pants fact, get looser, get tighter, get looser. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> Waistline yeah. are like as high up on the waist. It's hilarious. Now that I'm old enough to see, I can't even believe some of the fashion that actually does come back around. It's oh, yes. Yes, indeed. <laughs> and, uh, of course, they sometimes they have to wait till people uh, are, are so young that they don't remember the last time it was exactly. here. So they can... <laughs> Think it's their own. Well, I love Niels Bohr's work. And one of the other quotes that he um, is well known for is um, until we discover the paradox, we have not yet begun to solve the problem. I think people try to solve the problem too quickly. Yeah, right? absolutely. And uh, when you discover the paradox, Paradox is often and mostly an even more powerful solution. For example, why would you write a book during the Great Depression? And especially, why would you put it in the title that you can get rich? <laughs> kind of okay, crazy. That's just funny when you actually think about it. I know when I said it, it was one thing. You just said it again, and it just made me chuckle. Yes, and so uh, one one way to to look for justification on this is a great book by Renee Maborn and Chan Kim called Blue Ocean Strategy. They talk about uncontested market space. You know, if you do the opposite of it, what everybody's doing in a time when you shouldn't even be doing it, well, then you're not going to have any competition. I call that the blue ocean. There are no fish, sharks around, uh, waiting to attack you. It's uncontested market space, and the data says that basically. You can double your revenue and you can quadruple your product simply by doing what you'd normally do, except for occupying uncontested market space.
Mm -hmm. I love it. In addition, I think the title of the book too, it is that, you know, big, huge problem, right? To solve. So it's almost like it's similar to, you know, the changing of the world, right? And yep. I think it gave a lot of people a shred of hope during a really challenging time. And, you know, really, can this happen, right? It's solving this big problem. And the truth of the matter is, and I believe this was, gosh, I can't remember who came out with this stat. I know Bloomberg is the one who reported it in a uh, article, is that you're 80% more likely to become a millionaire during the downtime than the good time. So it's really the opposite of what most people think. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, but then when you think about it, yeah, you know, that, that's a, a paradox. And, and of course, you see that, uh, you know, during the Great Depression, uh, Chevy actually passed Ford up as the number one brand of uh, model of, of car. And uh, Kellogg. Which is saying something because the car had oh, only yeah. been around for how long? Jeez. Uh, yeah, 20 years or so. And, uh, but Ford pulled in their horns and Chevy went for it. They went totally aggressive during that period of time. Same was true for Kellogg cereals who passed up post cereals as the number one cereal during that time. And, uh, and if you think uh, uh, that's crazy, how about this? During 1930, the first year of the depression, right after the stock market crash, where everybody lost all their money, Henry Luce publishes a magazine oh, I love called, this. called Fortune. Really? <laughs> you just lost Fortune? all your money. So why not come out with a magazine called Fortune? Yeah, sure. Why not? And, yeah. uh, and it was immediately successful in terms of subscribers and, uh, and I think you told me that they, they charged a dollar for it, which is like yeah. $15 today. Yeah. Can you imagine? Paying $15 for a magazine today is unheard yeah. It's unheard of, right? That's right. An, let alone after the market crashed in 1929 and launched it in 1930. Yeah. It's so interesting. You know, so many times it's the opposite of what we believe, too. And we're afraid of it. That, and, and those that actually stepped into it. And I think he later, I mean, he's the creator of time and Sports, uh, Illustrated. Sports Illustrated and pretty much every huge, you know, at least four or five huge publications that are still in circulation today. But that was the first one he came out with. Yeah, it's amazing. So, well, let's talk about um, the next or the breaking down a couple of these principles. Like I said, we can't go through all 13 of them, but we can talk about six of the 13. And what we want to do is give you some information to be able to turn the principle into action and implementation and also understand why a lot of times it's like hey this is what you need to do but it's not your core nature to be able to do that let alone do it well and so we're going to talk about six of, uh, of these principles and then also uh, give you some input on how you can utilize the principle uh, understand it and then get to the point of doing something with it. So the first we're gonna talk about is desire, right? So people, and, and I think this is most people, they have the desire, they're fired up, and they wanna implement, but they ended up burnt out. Um, and they're trying to do too much, they're trying to do things that they're not good at, and in the end, they become disappointed, and I would even say that many get completely cynical 
right? Because they have the desire, they're fired up, they want to go. So desire in and in, in of itself is oftentimes just not enough. Yes. And, and cynical, and it's a probably evidence going back to uh, there's a place for this. It's called the bar. And we meet there every night. That's cynical. There's a reason why that sign, and, and, and there's so much truth to that, right? Is because it's that disappointment. And, and the longer you go with a desire that you're not achieving, and I mean, it's just this like cyclical, I'm fired up, I'm burnt out, I'm fired up, I'm burnt out. And then you're just like, I'm just wiping my hands of this. Absolutely. Two, two ways the flame can go. So uh, our friend Marshall Thurber probably showed the positive side of desire because you've got to have the desire. And Simon Sinek talks about that too. You, you've got to have your why. Uh, and, uh, and on its own, the desire can do a lot. Now, if you want to share a little about that, uh, Marshall was uh, called up to a community in Alaska where the high school seniors had a 12% suicide rate. And uh, they asked him to uh, encourage, do something that motivated these, these kids to learn so that they would not be, so their lives wouldn't be so hopeless. And um, he was given eight days. And at the end of the fifth day, they were getting impatient with him because he wasn't teaching them anything. He was supposed to be, because they were teachers, so they thought he should be teaching them content. No, that's mm -hmm. not why he was there. He thought he should be giving them the desire to learn. And he spent five days on the desire to learn through questioning, interaction. They're getting all impatient. And they actually found out that, you know, the last couple of days he he did get in. He did get into the content, but not until they had the desire to learn. So the desire to alone is a great first step, but mm -hmm. uh, it's also it's also not enough. If you'd have left at the end of the fifth day and just given them the desire to learn, it, <laughs> they would have been frustrated. Was like what? They would okay. have been at the bar too. Yeah, there, there's the disappointment. <laughs> there's that cliff, right? Yeah. That happens. I've got desire. I read this great book. I'm so fired up. Right. Exactly. And, you know, depending on the information that you have, it's like even, you know, it kind of reminds me of going to, I know you always call it seminar breath. You go and you're excited and you, you're there and you're, you're present. And what they're saying, it's not that it's not truth. It's just that you're you, right? And you have your core nature and you need all four. And we look at ourselves to manage it all, or we miscast our team or, you know, and all of that, the desire, it, it actually can fuel, you know, leaving dead bodies behind you too. And a whole bunch of other frustrating things where it's not only you that's disappointed, you're actually creating disappointment for everyone around you. Hence the reason why 70% of people hate their jobs, right? Yeah. There's nothing so, worse than somebody who's highly motivated who does the wrong thing yeah <laughs> it, it, it worse it is and you overlay their core nature of work and it's like you've got a heavily desired um you know um shaker they're going to come up with a new idea every other day and drive people crazy right and so understanding that is really important so desire is great but desire alone can create complete uh burnout and so let's move to the next one because we could talk about that for an entire podcast um 
The next principle we're going to talk about is knowledge. And in the book, uh, Think and Grow Rich, it talks about general knowledge and specialized knowledge. And this actually reminds me of Henry Ford, Alan, because they kind of lean in the book that specialized is much better, but you have to have both uh, and that you make more money, which I would have to say in some situations, that's correct. But look what Henry Ford did. He was a complete generalist and he hired people around him like his CFO, right, to save himself from himself. <laughs> so because the first two ventures he did completely miserably failed, and the last investor that was going to invest in um, the Model T and Ford Motor Company said, uh-uh-uh, I will not invest in you unless you take on these individuals to save yourself from yourself. Yeah, that's right. And so uh, as they went on and they were successful, one of the things that Henry Ford didn't want to do was uh, reward his employees who built the car from uh, as part of their success. And the, the, C, uh, the CFO, who uh, he was advised by the investors to hire, said, hey, look, uh, we're going to, we got to raise the wages of these people. And Ford didn't want to do this. And this story comes out of Ernesto Ciroli's uh, wonderful book. And uh, so finally Ford relented and he doubled his workers wages and more good things happened to him. Uh, all of a sudden they could afford to actually buy the car that they were building, <laughs> which then there were so many people buying cars because they could afford them that they had to build roads. And then the, when they built roads and they had to build restaurants and hotels on roads and it drove a booming economy for Mm -hmm. like until uh, until 1929 so it was about 15 years of a booming economy just from just from that and yeah that's pretty cool so think about it though it's a, it literally built the company and he would have never done it right but it's again that's the you know he had specialized number knowledge right where uh henry ford was a generalist and it literally raised the company yeah and launched and the company so, so we've put that into perspective for you, which is uh, where you think about it, because there's been an argument for you know decades uh, about whether you should specialize or generalize. And what we say is specialize in your role. What is your role? It's your role is based on what your core nature is. And so if I, for example, I'm a shaker, well, get me coming up with ideas because I'm going to hit it out of the park and I'm going to do it fast and I'm going to keep doing it as long as is needed, you know, but don't get me doing expense reports because I'm going to mess it all up and I'll be bored to death. And so specialize in your role and then generalize in what you know, because one of the things that, that happens is that when people are getting together and thinking and deciding what to do, if you can bring information in from outside the context of what you're doing, that's generalized knowledge, then you bring a per different perspective in and you bring in oftentimes the aha that, that makes you uh, have a, a much better idea of what to do, a much better strategy and mm -hmm. much better thinking. So, yes, yes, I agree. Let everybody share uh, their part of, of uh, their role in core nature and then also bring in that other. We've seen that many times over again because you get lost in yourself, too. So it's just not about your knowledge, but allowing other knowledge to come in. 
Yep. We could talk about that forever too. Okay. Next principle. And I love this one. Imagination, right? Oh gosh. So tell that to a maker, they would just die. But there's <laughs> really two types of imagination that they talk about, which is synthetic, which is looking back. So basically your imagination comes from what's happened pre previously in the past. And then creative imagination, which is looking forward or what are, what are the possibilities, right? That's it, right. It's kind of interesting to think about yeah. what your core nature is and how you'd look at that. Well, yeah. And think about this. There's a perfect correlation there because the, the mover and the shaker are the early adopters. And uh, what do the early adopters do? They look ahead. They're the ones who use the creative imagination. So they're into possibility. Whereas the late adopters, the provers and makers, are much more into looking back. And, what and went wrong last time? Yeah. <laughs> That's never going to work because we already tried it. We tried that. And, oh, don't bring that in here. It's going to disrupt the whole system. And so they're, they're looking to warn you about what can go wrong. And it's perfect because they are looking backward at reality. Uh, uh, the... Uh, Early adopters are looking forward at possibility. So that's, that's why uh, you not only have these two kinds of information, but you know, think about the who and the when. And the who is that it's the, the later adopters, the provers and shakers, who should be doing the synthetic looking back. And it's the, the movers and make, excuse me, movers and shakers who should be doing the creative, the looking ahead. Mm -hmm. Love that. Love that. And uh, so we'll move on since we're trying to shove a ton, like a day's worth of conversation into, yes. <laughs> into a half hour podcast. But okay, the next principle we're going to talk about, and I really like this one because I think people beat themselves up on both sides of the coin uh, uh, on this. And, and if they just had all core natures of work showing up, it would help everyone. So the decision versus procrastination. Okay. This to me is you're in it like many of these principles and the ones that we picked out primarily, you're asking somebody to be something that they're not. And so when you think of decision and you think of the hoodoo model that we utilize, we have doing decision versus thinking, which is seen as procrastination. However, you know, that's your, your doers and your thinkers are different people completely. So how are you just saying, okay, you need to be a doer because that's really what the book said. Don't procrastinate, take action, but you've got to take the right action and you need to take an action that has your doers and your thinkers, not just your doers or else you're going to blow the budget, go overboard and potentially crash the company. If you're just doing without thinking, I mean, heck you should think 80% of the time and do 20%. Yeah, absolutely. And most people have that backwards. So uh, we've seen that in our classes quite a few times. Yeah. yeah, everybody wants to jump in and start doing stuff and they haven't even thought about yeah. what they're doing yet. Even after we teach the model, that's the crazy part about it. You're like teaching them and then you give them a, a task and they just go right back to it because that's right. we can't decide who we are. That's they got all excited. Yep, exactly. <laughs> gotta get doing, gotta get doing, gotta get doing. That's right. The brain shuts down and here we go. So uh, the Hoodoo Method actually allows people to make decisions based on the contribution of each core nature and, and the 
process kind of forces you to have the discipline of doing enough thinking, of doing that 80% thinking, not getting too excited about going ahead, but at the same time, not leaving a meeting saying nothing's ever going to happen because it allows people to, as individuals, to respect their own individuality as a member of the team. They don't have to sacrifice themselves because each each core nature is called upon to contribute to the decision at just the right time. So everybody gets to put their imprint on it in a positive way and not be judged. Mm -hmm. Like we always say, we need you all, but we just need you at different times. So there's different times during the process with ideation and implementation that you balance back and forth. And I love that everybody gets to put their imprint on because we need everybody. And, and, and we'll talk a little bit, in a moment about being marginalized and what that creates if you don't identify everybody for their unique role and core nature. Okay, so the next one we're gonna move on to is the mastermind. I love this one because I think it's like the biggest overgeneralized term that could probably happen in in, um, business books and uh, personal growth. So what it, which is, it's fantastic, by the way, the mastermind's amazing, right? We all say yes to it. And we know that, you know, uh, that it's a great thing to be with other individuals. I think the identifying thing is, is that you have to define the context of the mastermind, which doesn't happen frequently. So it's one thing to be around quote unquote, like-minded people, but it's a completely another thing to be um, around, you know, who is in this mastermind, right? How, uh, and, and, and is it a book club, right? So that's a type of mastermind because you're getting different perspectives on a book. So that's typically the type of mastermind. Is it oftentimes they call it a mastermind and they're just sending referrals back and forth. And so, you know, really you can utilize the hoodoo method to create the context so that what happens is that everyone showing up is showing up for the same reason. Otherwise you see this and I, and Alan is probably why I don't belong to many masterminds. Not that I don't. It's just that a lot of them, if the context isn't created appropriately, you just got this ping pongy thing going on the entire time. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, And I've been in some good ones and some really, really bad ones. And I think one of the things that you mentioned is getting everybody understanding and agreeing to what a mastermind is for and what that particular mastermind is, is for around the purpose, um, you know. Uh, well, and, and also identifying like what each core nature, they respond differently completely. And it's a mess if the leader doesn't understand the hoodoo method, if it's, it's about getting something done or even people getting their feelings hurt or whatever. Oh, absolutely. You know, and everybody talks about uh, uh, Carnegie and Alexander Graham Bell, Thomas Edison, they all had mastermind groups and they met in Florida uh, and they were very successful. But uh, uh, it's a very different thing what happens when people uh, join a mastermind group. And and oftentimes the, uh, for example, uh, shakers and provers who are the thinkers, uh, like to test ideas, but uh, oftentimes the agenda is not to listen to what people, how they react to the idea as much as it is just to try to get people to praise them for how great <laughs> their ideas are. <laughs> so you can tell how dysfunctional that meeting gets. Now, uh, how makers, on the other hand, 
are are pretty much sitting there and maybe in a lot of ways don't want to be there and are just hoping somebody gives them a referral or <laughs> or something like that. And they typically have a different agenda for sure. And even if it's listening, okay, that's listening. But again, what's the context here? Because if, you know, what does that, what is the, the context of the meeting determines so much. And oftentimes it's just not, not identified for a maker. I think that would be extremely challenging, the most challenging for them. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Because uh, usually in meetings, they don't want to, don't want to be there anyway, as we've said so many times. Uh, and so, uh, gosh, we've, we've seen all these people. And so one thing is to get everybody's purpose clear, but also to identify people and contextualize their responses by what their core nature is. If I ask a uh, test an idea on a shaker that shaker's going to say well that's a pretty nice idea but i've got six more how about this and how about this and how about this and why don't you do mine and so uh, uh whereas uh, a maker might just uh, want more and more and more detail and more and more detail and maybe a shaker's testing that idea and the maker is just sitting there saying well you're not giving me the detail and the shaker saying, well i haven't thought of it yet and so you can really get into <laughs> it can be a mess and people can go away on it unhappy and uh, you know even a, a blind squirrel will yeah, get or, once in a while and so sometimes you get something out of it but uh, and the other pieces that's why they fall apart and don't stay together long term because they haven't set that and understood that and so you know you miss a lot of the opportunity of the power of the mastermind when you don't utilize that yep. okay so let's go ahead and move on to our last principle which uh, this is a really good one uh which in, in understanding it and then we're not going to talk about it in a personal fashion but in a business fashion which is fear right so oh. fear especially when we overlay the hoodoo method and each core nature, we experience fear very differently. So a shaker experiences it because, oh my gosh, they're going to think um, my idea is not good. They don't like my idea. They don't like me. Or they're going to think, oh, squirrel, my head's in the clouds, right? And so you know, we have to, they have to identify that that is your fear. And, um, and then a mover, their typical fear is there's two of them. The first is they're going to see me as pushy or always having to be in control. And the second fear is that you're going to go into a meeting. You don't have the ability to facilitate or have somebody else. You don't care if somebody else facilitates. You just want an ends to a mean or means to an end. You want something to happen. And so we movers become completely disengaged if that's not in any meeting, let alone, I mean, a mastermind meeting, a business meeting, a phone call. It doesn't even matter. If that's not happening, our fear is we're going to waste an hour of our life and we could be doing something different. Um, the prover, their fear is, oh my gosh, if I point something out, I'm going to be seen as negative, negative Nelly, Eeyore, gosh, you're such a Debbie Downer, you're such a pessimist. And so then the maker's fear is they're going to actually make me contribute and say something. And I have like a t ton of stuff to do back at my desk and I got some checklists to, to eat. And so we have to be aware of what our core, what what our fear is associated with our core nature of work when we're working with a team. And again, fear we could talk about for a day in of itself, but we're overlaying this with the hoodoo method in overcoming those fears that can be created by your role. Absolutely. And, you know, it really comes down to, uh, you know, being fear of being fired or sometimes even one. worse, emotionally being marginalized, you know, sit in your office and shut up and, 
you know, and then people talk about you in the hall that you're an idiot or whatever. And, uh, you know, that's... Oh, I've that's, never heard of that happening. Yeah. No, 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 that's, that's not too pleasant. And uh, so, uh, and, and so the fear of being fired is an interesting one. And I remember uh, we worked with one of the... Uh, one of the regional bell operating companies and uh it was about the time of uh downsizing and they decided to, oh i know who you're talking about yeah <laughs> this I, is a great story they decided to get rid of and they didn't even know who the makers were but they perceived the makers in their negativity of course which was their detail people and of course they resist change so well, we didn't they set the agenda they just wanted to be innovative yeah, we're going to be innovative, so we're going to get rid of everybody who's uh, who's afraid of change. And so they so they did that, and uh, and they fired all these makers. And I remember this that they, here's what happened immediately: that to get a new telephone, the the time used to be thirty thirty. Uh, I'm sorry, uh, used to be a a half a day, the response time, and uh, then they uh, within within. Uh, I guess about two or three days, the response time went down from a half a day to something like 30 days. It was almost 30 days. Yeah. And I remember getting back from a, a, uh, an uh, out of the country trip and my voicemail had been shunted over to some concrete company. Somebody else entirely. <laughs> were getting had your, your phone number. Because you know, because they didn't have any people who could do the detail well, details well. And, and if you think about it, uh, when you understand people's core nature, you, now you have an opportunity to hold them in their excellence instead was, of their just, smallness. You literally just took the words out of my mouth is you can remove their fear and allow them to step into their brilliance by removing the fear of saying, I appreciate you for what you are and not expecting them to be something different. Or like you said, marginalize them. So a lot of times movers and shakers, and it is even cliche that they're valued more than provers and makers, but we need everyone equally. Yes. So we just need you at different times. Different times. <laughs> so with that said, thanks so much for joining me today, Alan. I'm like, as a love in this series, I love going back to these books that, you know, are m many of them, some of the first business books that I read. And, and I can feel it, it you know, I kind of get elated because I remember the frustration and the burnout and the disappointment that I had. And so, you know, our why, our big why is to revolutionize the way work is done. So I'm so excited Absolutely. found this process that makes life amazing and being able to bless others with it as well. So if you'd like to hear more information or learn more about The People Catalyst, visit us at thepeoplecatalysts.com. Thanks again, Alan. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The People Catalyst podcast. And remember, it's a good life.